This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 25th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Broadly written statutes that aim to get tough on crime regularly ensnare people who've done nothing wrong. And when coupled with a mandatory minimum sentence, the government can effectively destroy the lives of a whole family. Greg Newburn is the state policy director for Families Against Mandatory Minimums. We spoke today at the State Policy Network's annual meeting in Denver, Colorado. Shanine Allen is a mother from Pennsylvania who had a legal concealed carry permit, uh, a permit to carry a pistol in her car in Pennsylvania. She drove over the river into New Jersey where it's illegal for her to carry that pistol in her car. And she was arrested and prosecuted for uh, violating New Jersey firearms laws. And the particular statute she violated carries a three and a half year mandatory minimum prison sentence. Uh, this story became sort of a uh, cause celebre, I guess, uh, among sentencing groups because it was so clearly insane that this person who's no criminal history, a mother of two, uh, never harmed anybody in her life, was facing prison time for what amounted to be uh, just exercising her Second Amendment rights in a place that didn't want to recognize them. Uh, And so she was facing three years in prison, and people were calling for the prosecutor to come up with some alternative to prison for her. And the prosecutor routinely was saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to prosecute her to the fullest extent of the law. And he cited a memo in 2008 from the the, the then attorney general that said that these kinds of cases needed to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, So for months, she was facing the prospect of a three and a half year mandatory minimum sentence. Fortunately, just uh, recently, the acting attorney general issued a memo to local prosecutors saying, in effect, that these kinds of cases uh, should not be prosecuted that way. And in fact, went so far as to say that prison is unnecessary uh, and improper in cases like Shanine Allen's. So the prosecutor in her case has now decided that Ms. Allen is eligible for pretrial diversion, and it looks like, fortunately, she will be spared prison time. Uh, even The charges aren't dropped. She's still face, facing the same charges, but she will not go to prison for them. So we have, uh, if I understand correctly, two problems here. One is that states are not necessarily expressing reciprocity with respect to other states' laws governing guns, and people like to travel with their guns because their feelings of safety don't necessarily change when they're uh, moving across state lines. And uh, the other issue is that she's caught up with a mandatory minimum. Right. Uh, Many states have reciprocity with one another when it comes to concealed carry permits, Uh, New Jersey's not one of them, at least with respect to Pennsylvania. So even though she may technically have violated New Jersey law by having the firearm in her car, uh, she was clearly not involved in any kind of gang activity, any kind of criminal behavior, the sorts of behavior that were anticipated uh, by the legislature when they passed this law. She's certainly not of the class of people intended to be covered by the law. And yes, there's this mandatory minimum that applies equally to her as it would to those members of those classes, of of the criminal classes. Uh, So when the legislature passes this law and they have in mind a gang member, uh, someone who robs a liquor store or something like that, in the end, that applies equally to people like Shanine Allen and Brian Aiken, who's gone uh, through the same thing and was actually pardoned by Governor Christie uh, after he spent four months in, in New Jersey prisons. So uh, Brian Aitken, who is known to many folks, he's uh, associated with some various libertarian organizations uh, over the years, but he was pardoned, which at best reveals a problem in the law. 
right? The fact that somebody could, somebody could be pardoned for doing something they knew to be no problem. Right. They're not creating right. any threat. And, and Brian's case, the facts of Brian's case overlap very clearly with Shanine Allen's case. The facts are very similar. And one would think that even after Brian's case exposed this negative unintended consequences of New Jersey's mandatory minimum gun law, that it would have been fixed after Brian's case, after the governor has to step in and remedy this this problem. But it hasn't been fixed, and now we're right back where we were now with Shanine Allen. And there has been some movement toward fixing this law, fixing the mandatory minimum, uh, and, and we're hopeful that it will continue, uh, that New Jersey will, will take those proposals and actually implement them. Brian's got a book now that chronicles his story. I think that's coming out soon. Uh, but, but his story, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, he, it's it ruined his life, and he, he never did anything wrong. The first impulse of, of lawmakers, I feel, is always to look at situations like this and think about what is the smallest possible thing that we can do that will deal with adequately with this situation and maybe a few other situations that are uh, like it. Is there a move? Uh, you know, a lot of people have been observing this this case. It's in at least some conservative and libertarian outlets. This has been uh, this has been made a pretty big deal. Is there a move in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, to actually adjust the law beyond a, a tiny carve-out? Uh, and are other state legislatures really paying attention to this case? The re- reform proposals that I've seen in New Jersey uh, amount to what we call a safety valve to allow judges discretion in cases like this, extraordinary cases that clear- clearly do not fit the kinds of cases that were anticipated by when the legislature passed the law. Uh, I think there are two bills now that have been introduced that have some sort of safety valve element to them, but I don't know if they've, uh, if, if they've moved or if there's any real momentum behind the bills. Uh, as far as other states, uh, I know Pennsylvania is dealing with their own mandatory minimum issues, and in Florida, where I work primarily, we just passed gun mandatory minimum sentencing reform as well. So I think that there is an undercurrent out there where people are starting to recognize that there are unintended consequences that ensnare law-abiding gun owners and send them to prison when they don't need to go to prison because they haven't hurt anyone. They haven't really violated any social norm uh, or any meaningful law, uh, but they end up with violent criminals behind bars because of the overbreadth of these mandatory minimum laws. It is difficult to craft legislation that will catch only the right people and let law-abiding people ensnared, uh, who would otherwise be ensnared, just go free. And um, I guess, you know, how big a problem is this? It's a very big problem, especially in gun cases, because gun cases often involve self-defense. And self-defense is, as much as we'd like it to be, an objective standard. There are so many subjective elements to self-defense. How does someone feel at the time that they perceive an attack? Is it reasonable to believe that they're under threat of imminent attack from from someone who means to do them harm? Or are they misjudging a situation and they're using a gun in, in, in an inappropriate way? These are questions that are very difficult to answer, especially in the moment. And so what happens is you get otherwise law-abiding gun owners who are in a situation where it might be reasonable to perceive an attack, but other people might not perceive the attack. 
they either display a firearm or they fire their firearm and then are second-guessed by prosecutors after the fact who come in and say, you shouldn't have used your firearm in that situation, therefore it wasn't self-defense and we're going to charge you with a crime. Or you shouldn't have brandished it. Or you shouldn't have brandished it. There's an absolutely an horrific case in, in Florida that's going on right now of a young man who brandished a firearm to ward off what I think any objective person would consider to be a threat. And he's he's been... Uh, arrested and prosecuted with aggravated assault. His case is at the Supreme Court now, the Florida Supreme Court now, and if it goes the wrong way, he'll be facing a three-year mandatory minimum. And uh, it's those kinds of cases where people are perceiving an an attack and either brandish a firearm or use it in what they consider to be self-defense, and then they're second-guessed and they face arrest, prosecution, and and potentially incarceration. So it's, it's a big problem. And I, one of the important parts of this is that it's an inherent problem. When you have something like a mandatory minimum, and there are no exceptions to it, it is inherent that otherwise law-abiding people or people who are not anticipated by the statute will be ensnared by it. We see it over and over again at the state level and the federal level. If there were no plea bargaining, would prosecutors care about mandatory minimums as much as they do right now? I'd say clearly not. Walk us through the reasoning. In fact, even in public forums, prosecutors admit that one of the chief values of, of mandatory minimums is that they tilt the scales of justice in favor of the state, that they help prosecutors make cases, and oftentimes that they wouldn't be able to make otherwise. Uh, so the, the very fact that there's a harsh sentence out there creates an incentive for defendants to take plea bargains rather than go to trial. And prosecutors admit that it isn't deterrence. It isn't incapacitation. It isn't any inherent part of the, the law that, that creates some sense of justice or punishes an offender. It's the fact that it helps prosecutors get convictions. To them, this is not a bug. It's a feature of mandatory minimums. To those of us who value constitutional rights and due process, it's a bug and, and a major bug, and then it needs to be fixed. But yeah, I think unquestionably and from their own perspective that they have admitted publicly, that if it weren't for plea bargaining, they would not support mandatory minimums nearly as much. Surveying uh, the state level, what are some bright spots for in recent years and in the coming years? In recent years, we've seen a big push on drug sentencing, especially in the South and especially among Republican legislatures and Republican governors. South Carolina in 2010 passed a, a great drug safety valve. Georgia in 2012 passed another drug safety valve. In Florida, we just passed sentencing reform, uh, drug sentencing reform. You see push, a, a push for this in part because corrections budgets are out of control. Prison populations are out of control. We're wasting a tremendous amount of money and not getting any public safety benefit in return. And so when you have Republicans and conservatives who look at the landscape and look at the criminal justice system and say, we're not getting what we want out of the system. We're not getting the bang for the buck. They apply the same principles that they apply in other areas of public policy to criminal justice and realize that mandatory minimums as they currently are are indefensible. So we see this push, especially in the South and especially in Republican states, to embrace sentencing reform. And we're also seeing the same thing at the federal level. There has been a dramatic decline in crime in the United States since the early 90s when it sort of hit a, hit a peak and we saw got a lot of get tough laws mm-hmm. in the 1990s. Is that part of why uh, we're not getting the bang for the buck? I mean, if you see crime having fallen so much and there's a vigorous debate about exactly why that's mm-hmm. occurred, uh, 
it's harder to get bang for the buck by spending the same amount of dollars or more right. dollars because crime's just lower. Right. And and we're spending, like you said, the same amount of money to get ever diminishing returns on it. And we have so many people in prison now that the marginal value of putting the next person in prison is almost nothing. And it, and especially in drug cases, it's almost guaranteed to be a net loss. So what we're proposing and other criminal justice reform groups are proposing is a more rational allocation of scarce resources. Focus your resources on violent criminals, on repeat offenders, people who actually threaten civil society, who can't live peacefully among the rest of us, while using what we what are now earmarked for corrections and prison costs for more police on the streets, better and more creative ways of crime control. There are ways we can control crime more efficiently and more justly, more respectfully of constitutional rights than the current system, than the current system of mandatory minimums. Thankfully, more people are coming around to that position. Greg Newbern is a state policy director for Families Against Mandatory Minimums. You can read more about our broken criminal justice system at our website, cato.org.